It's another Dr. Stu's podcast with me, your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, and my protege, Bliss Young. We're here uh, for podcast number 137. Uh, you can find us on iTunes. Give us five stars. Share us with your friends. DrStu'sPodcast.com. You can email me at AskDrStu at gmail.com. We're going to be doing some uh, emails from the uh, email box today, going over some of those. You can like us on Facebook. I'm also on Instagram at uh, Birthing Instincts, and then Bliss can tell you a little little bit about herself and her contacts. Go. (laughs) Um, Yeah, find me on Instagram, Birthing Bliss Midwifery, and Facebook, or you could email me at birthingbliss, B-L-Y-S-S, dot com. Okay, so... Before I get into some events that happened here in Southern California, I have to apologize profusely. No, not profusely. Well, yes, I'm exaggerating a little bit. <laughs> but I apologize because at the end of Podcast 136, Bliss was telling us a little bit about a client she had with bleeding where she didn't do fundal massage. And I sort of went off uh, because time was running out. Yeah. And I looked at the clock and I didn't let her finish. So for those of you who've been worried for a whole week or something <laughs> that you wanted to hear the end of the story, uh, here it is. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting to consider the fact that you could do a bimanual before you give medication. I think in our midwifery training, it's usually Pitocin is probably the first thing that we go to when we have a bleed. Um, But in this particular instance, we had already given 20 units of Pitocin and um, she still was having a trickle bleed. And so we thought, you know, one of the midwives had mentioned um, we had a student who was finishing some of her catches at this delivery. And so um, that midwife had mentioned that maybe you know, she might want to consider going in for a clot, but maybe it was a clot. And, um, and you know, just killing two birds with one stone because it wasn't so much bleeding that we needed to, like, you know, stop it immediately. It was just right. a trickle. So something's going on that we're paying attention to. And um, so we got her up. Changing positions, if someone's not on an epidural, can oftentimes help dislodge that. So we got her up to the toilet made sure she was okay, you know, she hadn't bled enough that she was dizzy or that would be a problem. And then um, she passed the clot and peed. So we didn't have to go and do something invasive and uncomfortable by just changing positions and allowing her to pee. Now, if that hadn't remedied it, then we definitely would have uh, gone in. And, right. I think and, that's brilliant. Actually, yeah. that's, a, that's a great idea yeah. as long as they're, they're able to stand up. Totally. Right. Yeah. Sometimes. They're, and they're not bleeding profusely. Right. And sometimes they're not. Or sometimes they're, you know, they're, they're, um, you know, they're holding their baby and they don't, they don't really want to let go of their baby at that point. Sure. But I guess you could give them the option too. And I had a woman get up and go to the toilet with her baby. Okay. So there's another <laughs> option before you do the, uh, the fist bind squeeze. <laughs> it sounds like a dance move. <laughs> Oh, okay. You'll have to show me the move sometime. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so uh, listen, it's, uh, we're in Southern California, as everybody knows. And I think uh, what I should have mentioned in Podcast 136 is, um, you know, we had major fires down here. Major. Major. While I was in India. Yeah, while you yeah. were away. Mm-hmm. They were spectacular um, yeah. in, in, their, in, in their devastation as well. I mean, I, you know, that's where my kids grew up was in that neighborhood. And that's where they went to their high school, you know, to elementary school, junior high school, high school. Um, we had friends that lost their houses. We had friends that had to evacuate for days. We have many clients who clients houses. had to, yep, clients who lost their houses or at least had to leave um, the area. I don't have anyone who lost their house. Did you? Yeah. Up oh, yeah. There? yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Especially up, you know, up in clients. the, up on, uh, on your Mulholland where my horses I kept in the ranch yeah, up there, they lost pretty much their barn. They lost their home. They lost, it was a wine tasting place, the winery, the wine tasting area. Across the street? Across the street, Which all burned down. Which we never went to together. Yeah, Aww. all burned down. Dang. Uh, they're going to build, they're going to rebuild. Sure, and then sure. I know that my friends who uh, play, have a place called Zacharosa Farms, they lost pretty much everything too up there. They're a ranch where people could board their horses and stuff. And they had a house that the, all the kids, their kids grew up in and it's all gone. Yeah. And it burned all the way down to Malibu and all the way out to Point Doom. And, you know, and some of these houses are, you know, millions of dollar houses. Um, yeah, fortunately, I... in our fire, that no one lost their life. And I wanted to thank the good people at the ranch where I keep my horses. Uh, it's called Saddle Rock Ranch. They took a lot of heat because the, the, um, there's some animal rights people and stuff who thought that what they did was wrong, but they left all the large animals up there during the fires and mm-hmm. they and they have a menage up there they have a giraffe that's very famous stanley mm-hmm. and then they have buffalo and they have yaks and they have water buffalo and zebras and they're not animals that you can sort of load onto a truck and get out of there so 
what they did was they had a very large area that's that's a field with nothing in it, uh, and there's a little pond there and stuff like that. So they took all the horses and they just let them go hmm. uh, into the field, mm-hmm. and uh, there wasn't a single large animal that was hurt. And uh, actually, one got a gash in its leg, hmm. but no, we didn't lose any large animals. Do they do they have problems with the smoke? I mean, I assume they do. Uh, like we do. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I. I don't know. I'm. Yeah. I'm assuming that they do. Yeah. But uh, you haven't heard your animals aren't like having no, they're not, co- they're not coughing, anything. <laughs> anything like that. Aww. But you know, the thing was, the roads were closed for over two weeks. Yeah, you couldn't get up there. Yeah. So even though I would stop, I, I went up there four times. I went to the, to the you know from different en- from PCH and from that Pacific Coast Highway, and from the 101 Freeway to try to find a way up there. I talked to the, sh- you know, they'd have a sheriff or a deputy uh, standing there. Uh, there's somebody from the fire department said, no, you can't go up, you can't go up. I said, I got two horses up there, you can't go up, you can't go up. So the, what was great was that Saddle Rock was posting, there were some of the people that stayed up there and helped with the horses. They they lost all their power, they lost all their clothing, they were basically up there for days. Um, wow. And uh, they would occasionally, you know, the cell towers were damaged, so there was, but they would occasionally get stuff out, and they had a, a feed on their, I don't know whether it's Facebook or, I think it was Instagram. And my daughter was going through the feed and saw a video of them loading some uh, animals onto a trailer. This was after the fires were out or slowly but burned down. And there in the background were my two horses uh, standing there together. As they, they all, were? And they're always together. As you know, they're Aww, always together. How cute. And so that was pretty exciting for me to see them. And they've been up there now many times. And uh, they're very affectionate. They're, they're, they're great. And, uh, Happy to see you. Yeah. So uh, this was a interesting because this was close to home totally. for us. Yeah, yeah. I, I came back from India on Wednesday. Thanksgiving was Thursday. And then Friday, I got in my car and I just drove up the coast. I just needed to see it. And it turns out it was the first day that I think the roads they were, were open, actually yeah. open that day. Um, and Starbucks was running, but, you know. <laughs> But <laughs> well, then you know things are back to normal when <laughs> but, Starbucks but is running. But the grocery store was completely closed. I guess they just had to leave, and so supposedly it was just you know all the rotten food and everything. They weren't going to be able to be open for a while. But I could see them, you know. Trying well, they lost their power too, so they couldn't keep things cold was, anyway. Yeah. But they were running the power lines, and I drove by all of our clients' houses to just check and see because they hadn't been up there yet, and um, just. N- Helped me, but you relax. saw the hillside was. It looked like somebody had dropped a bomb. I oh, mean. I mean, it's it was yeah, pretty devastating. And Leo Carrillo, which is my campground that mm-hmm. I kind of when I want to camp, but I can't really get out of town, and I still need to be on call. That's where I go, and it's completely gone. gone. Yeah. Everything, all all the bathrooms, all the trees. It's just the those mountains. beautiful sycamores are, are. It's gone. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 The beach is still there, obviously. <laughs> Sand stays. Um, yeah. So I did. We talked about the last podcast, pujas, which yes. is a ritual. So I did a puja and I gave back to the ocean some flowers in honor of the sacrifice that our Earth made, and that I just wanted to show some devotion and love. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, there was a devastating fire up in the Northern California called the Camp Fire. And uh, over 70 people, I think, were uh, were It was killed. called something else, wasn't it? it was called, I think it was called the Camp Fire. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know someone who, right. close to our family, who's lost everything in that fire. Yeah, because it came through. And that was that's an area where you're, in the, you're more in the forest up there. This is all this was all residential area. And, and, and Chaparral, California Chaparral, hillsides and stuff like that. But, the, you know, we have a drought and... Uh, and we're this, a desert. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was all just, you know, what do you call it? Fuel? Fuel. Yeah. yeah. And, and then the it winds, rains. And, well, and then, first of all, <laughs> and then the winds came up, and that's what causes the problem, is that mm-hmm. even if you, you know, have cleared all your brush out, you've got embers and stuff flying in the air, and there was, I was up there the day, the second day of the fire, where I tried to get up, and they wouldn't let me up, and you could see the ridge burning, and it was creating its own little tornadoes, so there were vortexes of smoke and stuff swirling around, It was, and the wind was blowing probably 30, 40 knots. So yeah. thank um, you, firefighters and first responders yep, and for all you did. Yeah, thank you. And yeah. then, um, so that was that. Uh, all right. So back to back to Doctor Stu stuff. <laughs> okay. So we want we wanted to go back into the mailbag. We got to one letter, but we've got I've got several other letters here, and uh, this one is from Jennifer in Massachusetts. All right. Um, she says, I hope you're well. I'm emailing because I found out about your practice and stance on home births for VBACs, breech births, etc. 
I live in Massachusetts, uh, so I'm not able to work with you, but I was hoping you could give me some advice. That is probably, I have some. <laughs> don't you think? <laughs> yeah, I think you do. Uh, it may not be correct, but I have some. I'm almost 33 weeks pregnant, and this was written uh, in October, so she's almost due now. Jennifer, if you're listening. Now, I usually respond to these people, so I'm not reading this without... I've, I probably responded to her. You're great about responding. Right. And but very to, thorough responses, um, actually. My first labor ended in emergency C-section for an unreassuring uh, fetal heartbeat after 12 hours of Pitocin. I had been induced at 41 weeks due to my baby's unstable lie, unquote, quote, unquote. She was slipping from transverse to breach to head down all in an hour. Well, that is unstable. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm worried that this will happen again. Uh, she wants to know... Um, last time she had too much amniotic fluid. Uh, my, my OB is supportive of my VBAC, but he said he thought my baby might be transverse at my 32 week appointment, which makes me consider this whole unstable lie thing. He also said he does not want to induce because I'm a VBAC mom. And I just want to make a comment on that, that that is not a contraindication to being induced. Even ACOG says that a uh, Pitocin induction with one previous cesarean section is perfectly reasonable. So Jennifer, but that is if that's if that's what he won't do, then then you're either stuck with that or you're stuck seeking someone else out if you need to be induced for any reason. Uh, it's certainly an option. You don't have to have a C-section uh, if there's a reason for induction. Induction is okay in feedbacks, right? Why would she be induced? Because of the well, I don't I don't know. I mean, oh, if she comes up with general. a reason, yeah, mm-hmm. if she comes up with a reason. Mm-hmm. She says I'm devastated, anxious, and want to try anything I can to turn this baby head down. I even I know even some of the common spinning babies techniques. And here, this is a question for Bliss. Mm. Do you have any suggestions or recommendations for what I can do? It is my only hope just hoping the baby is head down when I go into labor. I'd love to know your thoughts. And if you've ever seen a pregnant mama with an unstable lie, not end up in an induction or a C-section. Um, my first, if you were my client, my first thing would do be to help you find a place of trust. Because most of the time, your baby's going to be head down. Because only 3% of babies end up being in a breech position. And I don't know the statistic for transverse. It no, has it's to be less, even than, less, less than 1%. Right? Yeah. So, um, so, you know, and that's not always an easy process. But if you have to spend your pregnancy in some kind of state, I would, I would try and support you in finding that place of 97% of the time it's going to be Right. It's going to be perfect. Right. Great. Um, So that would be the first thing. But um, in terms of an unstable lie, we did have a mom who had a, say the word for me, bicorneate. Yeah. Bicorneate uterus. Right. Um, Uterus who had a breech baby the first time and the second time the baby was in a transverse because of her uterus shape. So I think sometimes if your uterus has an you know, I, I hate to say abnormality, but it's different, right? It's not the normal kind of uterus. Um, you might have something present again, similar to the first time, but pretty much every time besides that, some anatomy thing that's, it's going to be different this time. That's it's right. It's going to be a completely that's different That's what I was experience. going to add when you, when yeah. you talked about feeling in a place of trust. I was also going to add that, that we like to think that our babies are going to all come the same way, but they actually don't. They can be dramatically different. Pretty much all the time they're right. different. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's usually a very different experience. So trust- Especially this time if you don't have too much fluid. Um, if your fluid volume is normal, it's less likely that your baby's going to be able to do all those um, acrobatic maneuvers. Yes. And if you're concerned about it and the baby is hand down, you can also get yourself a Velcro binder. That you, you, that you could wear that helps to sort of just compress things to keep the baby in a longitudinal lie and obviously doing chiropractic work uh, to make your pelvis more mobile and loose so the baby w- wants to settle its head down in there too. And, you know, it sounds like that was happening in labor, but most of the time, by the time labor happens, babies find a way to get into a position that they feel comfortable with delivering. So it's also finding that trust to progress you through the entire labor process and continuing to let go of the past experience and really be in the moment of what's happening in this pregnancy. That's what I would say. Okay, so uh, Jennifer, I hope that helps. You certainly I can. I hope so too. Uh, if you need, needed more clarification, just uh, follow up with another email to me. 
or me at askdrstu@gmail.com, and I will forward it to Bliss. Yeah, I love the right. emails. Keep them coming. Yeah, can two people have the same email? Can you open my emails if we? Can that be done? Yeah, my assistant does it. She does. Mm-hmm. So you could just have the pass uh, mm-hmm. Google. Yeah, I could just give you my Google password, and you could then log in and read the emails. Sure. Okay. Good. He was saying I got, I'm getting a lot of praise, and I was like, I want to hear the praise. I need praise. Well, not all of it's by email. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Some of it's verbal, and some of it's by, you know, messenger, and some of it's to my personal email, and not not my professional email. Yeah. But I, you do get a lot of them. I think that one of them might even be in here. I, might, I love it. Thank you. We'll see. Appreciate all right. it. So uh, moving on to the next letter <laughs> from Terry. And Terry is from, where are you from, Terry? Uh, Michigan. Terry's in Michigan. So, I love that they tell so us So we've been friends. Massachusetts, Michigan. And Mandy from last podcast, I don't remember uh, if we knew where she was from. I think it didn't say on that one. All right. So uh, Terry's inter- Terry, I, I'm going to get to meet Terry. Uh, probably soon because this podcast will be out shortly before uh, my breach workshop, which is coming up. Well, I should probably do a calendar. I should probably announce events, shouldn't you I? You should. Yeah. January 7th, uh, Leighton, Utah, which is outside Salt Lake City. We'll be doing a, a one-day breach workshop, uh, lectures in the morning, and then hands-on teaching in the afternoon. And uh, we still have spots available. I did post it on my uh, Instagram and Facebook page. So uh, you can contact Krista um, in, uh, through the, that Instagram link if you're interested in going. And, and then you can ski afterwards. I'm going up to ski with my family for six days. And so if you want to ski with Dr. Stu afterwards, you can meet us up at Park City or uh, Canyons and, and we can ski a couple days too. Wow, I, that's I have a physician. Cool. I have a physician that's coming and uh, he wants to ski uh, with me afterwards. So that's kind of cool. That is very cool. Yes. And my daughter's, you know, my daughter will get tired of skiing with her dad anyway. So <laughs> that'll be great. Uh, okay. So she says, Dear Dr. Stu, I'm, a regist- I, I'm registered to attend a conference in Utah in January. While I have been to some breach training workshops, I'm looking to pull it all together, how to pr- practically offer this to my clients. Uh, in prep of getting to know you better, I have been listening to your podcast, starting from the most recent and moving backwards. Thank you for taking the time to share so much of your yourself. Each of your co-hosts has brought different flavor to the podcast. I enjoy Bliss the most. Yay. Thanks. Well, and then, and then least is Brian. What, <laughs> well, what do you say about Brian? <laughs> <laughs> you liked working with Brian. I though. loved Brian because yeah. he was funny and he's professional and he's an antagonist. <laughs> and I don't people, some people like us because we're, we're simpatico. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian would always be the uh, devil's advocate. Mm. And he, he tried to get me to be Brian, but I just can't be Brian. Yeah. I wanted her to like <laughs> ask me stuff and ask me questions and, you know, pick out news articles and stuff and then come at me with crazy stuff. Mm. Even stuff that was non-obstetrical. He would ask me any medical question. Yeah. Right. Um, I am probably a bit biased in that I enjoy the back and forth banter between the midwives and yourself. Okay, I do have a few questions about you, but first a little about me. She's a CNM, solo home birth practice in Michigan since 2013. Uh, she was asked to leave uh, some sort of healthcare, I think a system, um, after being accused of bull- <laughs> bull- Excuse me, I can't. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Terry, I didn't mean to laugh at this, but accused of bullying the staff. Hmm. Yeah, I'm sure you're very intimidating, probably. I had many frustrations of the nursing staff not following through with simple requests. Like, did you give mom a uh, glucola for her lab today? The midwife would go, no. And then she would ask her why. And she says, I don't know why. That would be the kind of responses she would get. Also, the secretarial staff losing moms in the building for two hours. And now mom finally finds the office and she's an hour late. Uh, anyhow, I worked as a hospital CNM for 13 years in three different states in different practice models. I love home birth, but like you, see myself burning out if I don't find a model of sharing clients backup or something similar. Yeah, I wish that I, you know, I should have, I should have burned out long ago. <laughs> right. Cause I've silly been doing this for a really long time. Even when I was doing hospital births, I was doing my own. Um, let's see. She says, uh, I was an OB nurse 13 years before I becoming a midwife. So she's been a midwife for 13 years before that. She was 13 years as a, uh, I guess a labor nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, so she must be about 80 years old. <laughs> Good <laughs> for you, Terry. Or started young. Yeah. yeah. 
I now average six to eight births per month, which is good. It's a lot. Yep. For home birth. That is, that is a lot. Mm-hmm. I do two to three, by the way. I do two to five. Mm-hmm. But some months I'll end up with more than that because of last minute stuff. Yeah. I don't want to do more than three, I don't think, a month. Yeah. Um, breach is the last area I need to conquer. I take insurance payment, but I'm out of network with all. I also accept Michigan, Medicaid. All right. So the questions. I know that California law prohibits midwives from birth with VBAC twins or breach. All right, just to correct you, Terry, it does not prevent midwives from doing VBAC deliveries. Thank God. Not yet. Right. There is a grayness <laughs> to the area, and so a lot of the midwives are getting physician clearance, as if doctors know any better about which, wi- which women are higher risk or not. I mean, as if midwives can't make those dis- determinations. It's one of those things that really aggravated me. I actually went to Sacramento when they were lo- when they were um, debating the the law and presented that fact that you can't know at 16 weeks or 20 weeks or 25 weeks or 32 weeks if a woman's going to have a problem. If she's had a low transverse C-section uh, and she's otherwise healthy. Then then why do you need a physician consult for that? But since the midwives are nervous in my state, they all often will do that. Not all of them, but a lot of them locally Some. here. Okay. She wants to know, does this include certified nurse midwives? And the answer is yes. Certified midwives don't do breach or twins, and I don't even think that they are doing VBACs. Do you know if... Uh, For some legally? Of the, yeah. I don't, I don't know about legally. I know that a lot of home birth CNMs don't. Yes. Mm-hmm. They want to limit their exposure, to, so to speak, because we do have a vindictive uh, nursing board. I love California. VBACs. You can send them all my way. Well, she wants to do them herself. <laughs> Our CNMs well, we don't ca- live in the same state. I'm yeah, she doesn't. Our CNMs in California required to have a collaborative agreement with a physician in order to practice. No. CNMs. Oh, CNMs. CNMs, I think, are. I think CNMs yeah, are supposed to have a... Have a um, it's, it's not a backup physician. It's called a supervising physician. They're trying to get rid of it. But we're like tra- a, yeah, like that's, that's in Sacramento now. It's been... You know, things, the wheels of justice turn slowly and they turn really slowly when, when they're for good. Bad things happen quickly. Good things take forever to, un, you know, to uh, unravel. I'm a little surprised not to hear more CNMs involved in home birth there. But in Michigan, only three to four CNMs offer home birth. So sad. I know you're in the midst of Hanukkah, so the trust that you have a peaceful, joyous time. Hanukkah's over now. Well, maybe not when you wrote this. I plan to have a very Merry Christmas with some extra quiet time. Sincerely, Terry. Uh, from Gentle Harbor Midwifery in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Thanks, Terry. I hope you get some time to yourself. Yeah, uh, Terry. I'm gonna. We'll have carry on this discussion further when I see you in uh, in January. Okay. All right. Thanks for writing. Okay. I uh, think the reason why a lot of CNMs don't do home birth is because when they're not, when I trained that way. Well, and also when I've heard people deciding whether or not to become a licensed midwife or a CNM, it's because they want. What, what they want to be able to be in the hospital and maybe have shifts and have privileges and be able to travel to other states and all of that. So there's, it makes sense for them. I think they choose to be in the hospital because of the structures. I even know a CNM who started delivering at home and then went back to the hospital because she, you know, she has a family and it was just too unpredictable to be on call all the yeah, time. Yeah. Even with, with a partner. With a CNM, and they, they're able to do that. They're able to work a right. shift. Right. Right. Okay, so this one, um, very simple question, but I, I, I included it because I love the fact that Manjeet uh, wrote me from Japan. She is an Indian woman living in Japan. Awesome. So that's interesting. I'd like to talk to her about how that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard your talk on Pregnancy Podcast, which was very impressive. After that, I heard you on Healthy Births, Happy Babies Podcast. Now I'm listening to your Dr. Stu's podcast. And I'm enjoying very much. You know, I wouldn't read a letter if it said, I'm listening to Dr. Seuss' podcast and it really sucked. <laughs> so I just want people to, you know, I, I don't get those, but I, if I did, I, you know what? I probably would read those. Maybe. I probably would read those first, actually. Maybe we should. Yeah. And then I, and then I ripped the hell out of the person who wrote <laughs> it. But. All right. I have a question to ask you. And this is, this is a very simple question. It just shows that, that, you know, she is not a birth worker. She's just a pregnant woman. Hmm. And some, awesome. of the, uh, some of the lack of knowledge out there and the fact that she had to write me for this question. I'm 33 weeks pregnant and my blood type is B negative and my husband's type is B positive. The doctor said that baby's blood group would be B positive. All right. That is 
Not necessarily true. Right. It depends on if the father is heterozygous or homozygous for B, B positive. What that means is it's basic, simple Mendelian genetics. And if the, ba- if the father carries two B positive genes, then the baby will be B positive. And the child will be heterozygous because it'll have a B negative from the mother. But if one of the husband's parents was RH negative, the husband could be B positive with a B negative um, recessive gene and pass that on. And the baby could also be B negative Manjeet. So uh, since we don't know, we, it's unable, we're unable to know technically your husband's full genotype. We only know his phenotype. So you'll have to wait and see and have the baby's blood tested. They gave me beta globulin injection during my 28 weeks, which is standard, is normal. It's an and, option. Right. But it's, it's the standard in America yeah. to do that. Yep. And if you want, you know, again, the, the risk of being sensitized is quite small. All right. It's very small, actually. However, if it is, it can be catastrophic in a subsequent pregnancy, not so much in this one. And if you want more kids, it's probably <coughs> safer to get the Rogam until you know for a fact. Now, there is a genetic test that can be done on fetuses to determine their blood type. Yeah, I know. Someone I don't know that they offer that in Japan. I certainly don't know uh, if it's very commonly done even here. But for cases where people are worried that they might be RH sensitized or whatever, and they want to make sure that their baby is RH negative, they can, there's a test you can do after 10 weeks with one of the genetic companies that can tell you the blood type. From the mom? Uh, from the mom's blood, drawing mm-hmm. blood on the mom. Mm-hmm. And they will give me another injection after birth. Now, here's the question that just tells me that somebody's not giving her a straight answer in Japan. My question is that due to the blood group issues, is normal delivery possible or would it be a cesarean section? Mm-hmm. And your answer is? Normal delivery is possible. It's preferable. It's yes. the norm. Yes. And uh, depending on the doctor and institution you go to, uh, you could have anywhere from a 30% chance of success to a 95% chance of success. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, there's no absolutely no reason to do a C-section in a woman who's not RH sensitized, whose baby is not RH sensitized. Yeah, we hope that you can enjoy a vaginal delivery for your baby. And all your future babies. And all your future babies. Thank you, Manjeet. I'd love to hear from you again and tell me how you ended up living in Japan. And do you speak Japanese? That's what I want to know. Ohio gozaimasu. <laughs> Not you. Oh. Manjeet. <laughs> Tutuketsu tutu dokodeska. Pretty good. And that's the two phrases I know. I can say kompai. <laughs> yeah, I know. Which I know bonsai too. But no, the first one was no, no. Ohio, good morning. Ohio gozaimasu. Uh-huh. Or konbanwa is good afternoon. You know, That's good evening. Mm-hmm. And then tutuketsu dokodeska is how do you get to the JNR train? Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I was in Japan. That was the same year I went to India. And I spent a month in Japan, And you actually. remember it. That was, what, 30 years ago? 20? 30, 32 years 30, ago. 30, yeah. Yeah. Well, I just remember those phrases. <laughs> it's kind of like remembering a Dr. Seuss rhyme or something like that. You do remember sort of those sorts of things. Yeah, pretty funny. Okay. Uh, the last letter before we get to an, one last topic, uh, which is a very important topic, mm. is from Carolyn. Uh, oh, no. This is this leads into the last topic. So Perfect. Look at Carolyn, that. Carolyn wrote me from another Michigan person. I love the fact that I have a lot of Michigan people, even though I'm a, I'm a Minnesota Big Ten fan, and we always lost to you guys. We won, I think we won the Little Brown Jug, which we, which we play Michigan for every year. I think we maybe won it twice in the last 30 years. <laughs> 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 Although Minnesota did win the uh, Paul Bunyan's Axe for the first time in 13 years, I think, from Wisconsin this year. What is that? It's the thing that they play for in the Big Ten each each. You know, we play Iowa for Floyd of Rosedale. Floyd of Rosedale is a statue of a pig. <laughs> we play Michigan for the little brown jug, and we play Wisconsin for Paul Bunyan's axe. It's all fun, right? Just it's fun. all fun. It's and fun. at the end of the game, the teams run to the other sideline and grab the axe. Yeah, it was pretty exciting because, you know, the Gophers pretty pretty bad in football. Pretty bad in, no, they're, they're bad in football. They're good in hockey, but bad in football. Okay, so this is more serious. This is a more serious letter, and we're going to get into this uh, for the last segment of the, of the podcast today. This is um, from Carolyn in Michigan. Hi, Dr. Stu and Bliss. Although you're in parentheses, by the way. But you did get an exclamation point. And I didn't. I'm still your tonto. And I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. And still what? I'm still your tonto. Yes, because you're in parentheses. I'm still in parentheses. <laughs> All right. Uh, I've written you in the past, but I'm a mother of four and we live in Michigan. I have had one hospital birth and three wonderful home births. Most people on my social media know how passionate I am about 
home birth. So a friend who shares my passion shared this recent fear-mongering piece with me called Failure to Deliver. Okay, now a lot of you probably listening may have already seen this. It was a two, I think it was a two-part, might have been even a three-part, four-part series uh, written, uh, it was published in the Columbus Dispatch. And it's a series about the perils of home birthing. Yeah, I didn't even want to talk about it on social media because I didn't want to give it any traction. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I just, I'm just disgusted, actually. Yeah, well, we're going to get to that. How, <laughs> how the rise of out-of-hospital births puts mothers and babies at risk was the uh, subtitle to the, um, to the article. It's being spread by news agencies as fact, and I am appalled. Me too. So naturally, yeah, that was even, you even said that before you uh, heard what Carolyn had to say. <laughs> so naturally, my first in- inclination is to send it to you <laughs> so that I can also be appalled. And perhaps address it on your podcast, which I faithfully listen to. Here's the link. Keep up the good work. I love you guys. My home birth has changed my life in so many ways. And I am thrilled to know that caregivers such as yourselves are offering this option to women. Lots of love from Michigan. Stay warm, Carolyn, and Merry Christmas. Um, Merry Christmas and keep sharing with people. I'm, I, that's, you know, when you're transformed by your home birth experience, we have a passion that can really make a difference for other people. So keep yeah. doing that. So... Here's the story, all right? Um, you can write, you can seek out to write a story about anything. And if you want to write about the perils of home birthing, it's easy to do. Uh, if you want to write about the perils of eating hot dogs, I'm sure you could find uh, good stories on people that have choked on a hot dog and died. All right? And I'm not comparing hot dogs to home birthing. I'm just comparing the fact that, that, I'm not comparing it. I'm just stating the fact that, yes, there are bad outcomes that happen in hospitals and there are bad outcomes that happen at home. Yes. All right? The question is, is it the norm? Is it it preventable? What are the reasons that people are seeking hospital birth versus, or home birth versus hospital birth? Why is it that, that we are holding home birth to a different standard then we hold hospital to birth to. My question about, I mean, again, there's so much in this article. One of the things that, that led me initially right off the bat to realize that this article was biased is because they interviewed somebody named, uh, for a quote, Danielle Rep. Mm-hmm. All right. Do you know who Danielle Rep is? Tell me. Uh, she goes by the moniker Dula Danny. Mm. Do you know who Dula Danny is? I don't. Dula Danny is a home birth hater. Home and, she, and she's sort of in league with she who shall not be named, mm. <laughs> um, who writes a blog about being skeptical. Mm-hmm. Okay, and she hates she's uh, attacks a lot of people that do home birthing. And she's actually a doula. I guess so. Okay, I don't know her background. I've never. I was really just going to say. Her. I wonder why she's such a hater. But when I see people, I see articles that quote she who shall not be named, or uh, doula Danny, or any of these people, and then don't equally quote. You know, Ina May or somebody else who's more, you know, renowned in the home birthing world. It just gives you, it tells you that sometimes there's a purpose in doing an article like this. And what they do is they basically take anecdotal stories and they describe how there's lack of supervision, how um, when there's a bad outcome, midwives get away with things. Like burying babies in the backyard. I just was like, I just can't, I just can't even, I can't even get over that one. I was just shocked. Shocked. I mean, maybe that happens somewhere in the country, but come on. Like that's in a news article as like the standard that that's what we do is we cover things up. Or I think the other one that really bothered me was that we're being manipulative and misleading people when we're interviewing with them in terms of safety because we talk about uh, what happens in other countries with midwives and that the reason why we have bad outcomes is because we don't have um, collaboration. Yes. (laughs) There's so much that could have been put into this article that would have made it a reasonable piece of journalism. On the you know again, people can criticize me for criticizing this article, but if you read it with an open mind, you can see that they're basically one point of view. And 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 um, those of you who uh, know about my Facebook page, you can find a link to a rebuttal sort of written by uh, a wonderful uh, midwife and advocate named Laura Gilkey. Mm-hmm. 
I'd like to and read she's that. And she's from Sarasota, Florida, I believe. And, and they were picking on Florida a little bit and a few other places. And she writes a, a beautiful article. And she says, you know, I'm not going to make the argument that the same could be said for hospitals. That there's bad outcomes in the hospitals. And we should, you know, because, nah, 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 because you're picking on us, you're, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, she says that we need a dialogue between the two things because... There are reasons that women choose home birth, and there are reasons that women choose hospital birth. And what Bliss just said is very, very, very relevant, is that there is the lack of collaboration, the lack of, of uh, smooth transition from one to the other. The reason that women are choosing home birth is because the lack of respect and the lack of uh, choices that women get in the hospitals. Why do you, I mean, I've said this many times, why do you think I do home breach birth? You're asking me? Yeah, it's, it was sort of rhetorical, <laughs> but it was actually a literal question. I mean, I think you do it because you weren't given the ability to be able to do it in the hospital. That's correct. Yeah. Because I was trained that it's not a high, it's, you know, properly, proper selection does not make it high risk. Yeah. And there's enough literature uh, in the world to, to support that mm-hmm. position. And I do it in the, at home because the women of Southern California don't have an option other than one or two in the hospital. And the hospital options are also not respectful for a woman's right to do the things that we like to do at home birth, like let them eat, let them move, let them be quiet, let them be peaceful, let them be undisturbed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the success rates are much higher. And again, as even though my, I I will, I will always qualify, qualify my, my paper, but even though a lot of the numbers didn't reach statistical significance, you know, the paper that we just published last month, um, mm-hmm. Rick Safries and I, actually it's two months now, it was in October, on home breach birth, uh, showing that the outcomes here can be quite good if you know what you're doing, All right? So what Laura Gilkey has to say is, is very smart. She says something to the fact that, you know, well, in the article they say something here to that hospital doctors and nurses, including hospital nurse midwives, have... Minimal educational and training requirements must follow organizational protocols and are subject to performance reviews by their employers. Most carry liability insurance, and they're licensed in every state. But hundreds of non-nurse midwives who oversee life and death situations are not. Okay. Well, just because someone isn't necessarily licensed or doesn't uh, uh, carry liability insurance doesn't necessarily make them bad practitioners. As a matter of fact, these hundreds and hundreds of midwives who do this probably have had a very good track record, and every now and then they have a bad outcome, and that can happen. But what Laura says, which is very pertinent, is that she says that midwives aren't nurses, but doctors aren't nurses either, because doctors and nurses are considered a separate profession. Why are midwives always compared to like labor and delivery nurses who have different training? Because midwives have completely different training, they have expert training. They have excellent training. They have spent three or four years in training, which is as much as any resident in OB spends in training, All right? And they come out, and, and again, I, you know, I have my bias, and I'm not going to try to hide it, that I think that there are bad things that people do at home. They shouldn't do it. I went as a backup physician for 30, to, 30 years before I, not 30, 26 years before I started doing home birthing. Um, I got a lot of transports that were things that, you know, I sort of shook my head at and I, w- I wouldn't have done that. I mean, I wouldn't have had a woman pushing it home for 10 hours. Right. Uh, that sort of thing. I wouldn't have had a woman with blood pressures as high as some women come in with blood pressures doing that. Um, but my job then was to take over and to give that family the best care I could give them. Um, but that was the exception. It wasn't the rule. Totally. And being at um, peer review with other midwives here in Los Angeles, I will tell you that my experience of hearing um, case cases presented is that midwives are actually, the midwives that I am in direct contact with are actually um, following the law as closely as possible. And so they're not really overstepping a lot of those boundaries because they don't want to risk their license and all of the work that they've put into and their livelihood and all of these things. So, you know, I'm sure that there are people who break laws and do things that are rogue, um, but that's not the direct experience that I have. And just to, you know, put that in publication really bothered me. And along that line, by the way, this is a very interesting thing because you know I'm sort of a libertarian when it comes to government interference in our uh, our lives like that mm-hmm. on a very um, 
I'm a believer in in smaller government and, and less regulation for many, many things. And Me yes, too. I'm a believer also in personal responsibility and buyer beware, caveat emptor, or whatever, you, however you want to say it. Um, in the article, the, the writer writes, she says, each state varies in its definition and oversight of out-of-hospital midwifery. The patchwork of laws and regulations makes it hard for families to know who they can legally hire, what kind of deliveries they can have, and whether protections for them exist. And to quote um, Kate McHugh, Director of Global Outreach for the American College of Nurse Midwives, she says, you basically have 52 little countries if you count the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, okay? And she looks at, I think, that as a negative. Mm-hmm. And I look at it as a libertarian, as a, as a positive. That's what the founders of our country wanted. Mm-hmm. They wanted 50, well, they were 13. They wanted 13 different ideas, and people can then gravitate. So the state's rights was all about state's rights. So are you, is this person advocating then that we should have one, uh, federal oversight over, I mean, uh, you know, I, you know how I get when it comes to starting <laughs> about talking about this stuff. It just gets me all riled up. Mm-hmm. Having 52 different Petri dishes is ideal. Right. right. So if people in one state don't like living in a state because they have high taxes, they can go to a state with lower taxes. Right. If people don't like living in a blue state, they can go to a red state or vice versa. Right. If we have to have every state be exactly the same, then we don't have the founding principles of our country. Mm-hmm. So the fact is that some states regulate things more than others. That's the choice of the, of the people that live in that state, to vote in people who choose to do these things or not do these things. And the, and the, and the, and the caution you want to have is you don't want to have an anecdotal bad outcome, which is very sad, drive policy. But unfortunately in our country right now, it, t- it, tends, to d- it tends to do that. You tend to have the, the, the squeaky wheel or the small person with the... With the bad outcome that will then go to a legislature and the legislator legislator wanting to look good will then try to you know come on the press and say something to support uh that person and then put put forward legislate legislation which then you know will restrict the rights of many people and you know that i again it's what i call stage one and stage two thinking and maybe i didn't be very clear about that but let me give you a clear example when i and maybe i've done this on the podcast before did I talk about pap smears before? On the, on the I believe so. Oh, I did. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. How pap smears used to cost $2 mm-hmm. and we would charge 8 And then they passed a law that said the labs can't, we can't bill for the pap smears. The labs have to. And because they thought that the labs were doing too many screening and they could only limit a certain number of people. So the labs cost went way up. Mm-hmm. And so the pa- price of a pap smear went up to like 26 bucks from 2 bucks. Mm-hmm. All right. Didn't do anything for quality. It just did something for bureaucracy. And the labs loved it because now the labs could charge a lot more for a, a pap smear. And there was no competition because doctors who were advocating on behalf of their patients were, were cut out of it, were cut out of the, the uh, equation because, of course, doctors were, were um, felt to be corrupt mm-hmm. and would go and choose the lowest uh, bidder for the pathologist. So the, I, you know, I got off the track here, but I just <laughs> like the idea that all the states are different. Why should they be all the same? Right. Can I talk about bad outcomes? Yes. So <laughs> you have to ask permission. Well, I just wondered if you wanted to take it in a different direction. Um, so my question is: bad outcomes is specifically saying not that there's negligence, correct? Correct. Okay, just that something that we hoped wouldn't happen happened. Right, and in specifically in some of these cases, there was probably some negligence as well, but not all the cases in presented in there. Uh, you know, if you break it down, if if you just describe it to a layperson, that sounds awful. But if you've been to births and stuff like that, you know, wait, wait a minute, that's not something that's that abnormal. Yeah, but you can't, I mean, like you have to have a differentiation in, in language because life is full of risks. And even when we know how to manage particular things, life does what it does. You can't control that in the hospital or out of the hospital. There's a risk to life, there's a risk to deliveries. And and putting that on the doctor or on the midwife that we're going to be able to control any outcome is an unrealistic ac- expectation. And, um, you know, so that too is something that I think needs to be addressed with this. It's like you can't just assume because there's a bad outcome that it was because of negligence. And I think the thing that really, that really hits most of us the most in the negative way is the, uh, is the headline of this article. Mm-hmm. 
All right. This is what I talk about. You know, I talk about research by press release. Yeah. This is something where people on social media will read the headline of the article, maybe read the first sentence or two, and that'll be the end of it. And, this, and the headline is, Failure to Deliver, Burgeoning Industry Fails to Hold Midwives Accountable. And that is so far from the truth. Agreed. So okay. far from the truth. So let's just uh, decide to throw this, this whole article in the trash bin yep. of history. Yep. And if you want to read Laura Gilkey's response, you can go to my Facebook page. And you'll find it there. It's on the Dr. Stu uh, Facebook page. And then I wanted to just add to the last couple minutes of the podcast, I just wanted to point this out. This is an article that I've been carrying around for a while because we've never gotten to it before. But this is about a physician, uh, an obstetrician in Northern California that was accused, accused of negligence mm-hmm. by, the, by the California Medical Board. And I want to read you the three cases that they accused the doctor of negligence on and see what you think about it. In a hospital? Hospital doctor. Uh-huh. Yeah. So... The first case um, was there was a 32-year-old pregnant woman with twins diagnosed with mild preeclampsia uh, in April of 2014. The patient was hospitalized overnight and on April 25th was delivered with delivery scheduled for the next day. Uh, he said, uh, they said that he, the doctors encountered significant obstacles to monitoring both twins but particularly as to twin B. At times, both monitors appeared to be monitoring only one of the twins. Now, first of all, is that the doctor's fault? No. No. Yeah. It's the hospital's fault. Right. Okay. When an ultrasound showed twin B's heart rate to drop to the 100, which isn't horrible, the patient was taken to the operating room where that twin's heart rate increased to the 130s and dropped to the 80s. An emergency C-section was performed. Twin B subsequently died. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Tragic. Yeah. But the baby was in the hospital. Mm-hmm. By the way, this isn't supposed to happen in the hospital, is it? No, it never happens in the hospital. Never. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that's one case. Now, again, um, I know personally of cases where, where there's been negligence in a hospital and the doctor, of course, is blamed because ultimately the doctor's in charge when the doctor wasn't even informed of these things. So I don't know the details of that case. Right. But then, like, somebody just, you know, like, somebody looking, uh, investigating somebody looking for something they did wrong and then finding out that instead of collusion with Russia, they had uh, tax evasion. Okay. So in the second case, uh, he was caring for a 30-year-old woman with a due date of June 26th. The patient was admitted to the hospital by a midwife working under his supervision, but this doctor was monitoring another patient delivering a baby at another hospital and had not set up a backup system according to the medical board. The 30-year-old had a cesarean section the next morning with the doctor assisting. So they yelled at him for not having a back, no backup, you know, backup for it, even though the woman's at a hospital where they have other doctors. Other doctors mm-hmm. okay? The third case is even stronger than that one. That was a powerful case, that last one. He was caring for a 33-year-old woman who came in on August of 2014 in labor at 39 weeks and five days. The delivery was by cesarean section, because of fetal distress, the medical board report said, and the woman's placenta had separated from uterus, which can deprive the baby of oxygen. Clickoff did not write any explanation for the, in the patient's chart until four days later, a delay that the medical board said was unreasonable. Okay, it is unreasonable. But is that something that you, you want to, uh, is that negligent? Was there a demise in that last No. One? Oh, okay. No, just you just didn't put the... Yeah. It just didn't probably dictate his op report or do anything for a few days, which tends to happen if you're a busy physician. Right. So I'm just saying that that these things are not necessarily negligent. These things are certainly, you know, at, at worst, maybe slightly sloppy. Mm-hmm. Okay, not not having coverage or not this. But, but this goes on all the time. I mean, You'd doctors have people laboring in a hospital while they're on the golf course. Mm-hmm. Is that ne- if something bad happens, is that is that doctor going to be negligent? Is the doctor for what is paid by the insurance company supposed to drop everything and just sit there like you and I do at a birth? Well, I mean, we go about our lives until we're needed too, right? Do, do you? Yeah, but if somebody's pushing, do you? Are you no, there? Of course. Okay. <laughs> of course. How many times is the doctor telling the nurse when she spins the crown and give me a call? Yeah, I don't know. You'd know better than me. I would know better than you. It yeah. happens all the time. Yeah. 
Doctors, have, nurses have a really tough job at the hospital because doctors get upset if they're called too early and they get upset if they're called too late. Well, you know, we had a, we had that. I talked about it in a, a podcast a few times ago about how we had that baby that came out that was really compromised and they didn't have a NICU at that hospital and we had to transport to another hospital and all of that. That particular doctor told the nurse to call when the baby was crowning. And that baby was already showing signs of not doing well. So sometimes, you know, they're in the hospital and they're not even really like taking full responsibility. But yeah. Yes, I if agree. If you want to write you. a story on bad outcomes, you can find bad outcomes everywhere. And if you just have, a, again, if you're going to do a story on things about midwifery, you need to talk to people that are both anti midwifery, like Dula Danny, and you need to talk to people that are pro midwifery and need to get both sides of the story when you put a headline out there that that their their women midwives are going unsupervised and stuff like that listen i'm sorry laura gilkey but i'm telling you that that there are doctors that are far far less supervised they talk about being in a hospital where they have policies and protocols listen i was at a hospital where where doctors did bad things all the time and never peer-reviewed themselves because they were sort of in charge of the hospital yeah that happened all the time yeah. So that's you know that's just one of those things where we have to um, not have to breathe out. Standards. We have to breathe out when we see an article like that and realize that there's always going to be haters. I like that. What? I like your advice that you're giving. It's kind of like the advice I gave the mom about. Well, I used to not have this. Breathe out again. This is a, a this is wisdom that I've gotten through the years. Mm-hmm. That that no matter even if we know that we're right in most cases, there's going to be people that hate what you do. And they're going to come out and they're going to troll and they're going to do all these things and they're going to go crazy. And uh, it's a fact of life. Mm. No matter what business you're in, it's one of those things that happens. Yeah. So we have the music playing. <laughs> all right. My time is it's time up. Time to say goodbye. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> so again, thank you for listening, Until everybody. This time. has been uh, Podcast 137. Uh, we really appreciate uh, the letters that we've gotten. Uh, we'll, we'll, we will continue to screen them. We respond to all of them. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you uh, at askdrstu at gmail.com, which I will then share with Bliss. And uh, until next time, uh, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>